The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. It's good to be back with you this evening on this Lord's Day, and I'm grateful that we have this opportunity, most importantly, not only to worship with one another, but to come underneath the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And I'm, I'm encouraged that um, when Grant and I, a couple months ago, were pr- planning and uh, praying through the fall series, uh, this was on the forefront of our minds. What is Reformation theology? What is Reformed theology is another way for us to say it. And, you know, Grant and I have a mutual friend of Alistair Begg, and we're, this always comes to mind that one time Alistair heard that a local church was, was teaching on what is Reformation theology or Reformed theology. His wife said that, and then Alistair Beck said, oh, when is the pastor resigning? So that's a joke, guys. Um, but it is true because you don't see many Reformed churches out there in this day and age. And uh, we are, as you, if you don't know, I'll go ahead and tell you, uh, we are Reformed. And, um, but we don't hold it necessarily to, um, uh, to, to, to browbeat anyone. We just read it because that's what the, how the Bible um, is. And when you read the Bible from start to finish, you will see how Reformed theology connects the dots. And it begins to unpack right before your eyes the, the teachings of the sovereignty of God and the infallibility of God's Word and, 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 and so many other tenets of the Reformed faith. And tonight I'm excited because we have the opportunity to walk through uh, the second sola, sola fide. Sola fide. And I pray that you do have your Bibles. And like Jake said, I do have outlines for you, and they're right in front of the, the red um, cart there, and so you can grab one and know they are not the Cadillac kind of outlines that Grant gives you on Sundays. Uh, this is like college algebra, um, so you're going to have to use your hand and write, and it'll be good for the soul and uh, for you to be able to do this and, and to stay awake. That's really why I do it. But tonight what we're going to do is we're going to walk through sola fide, sola fide excuse me, and faith alone. It is faith alone. Uh, and as we will unpack tonight, we are going to see some very important uh, biblical truths. And what does the Bible teach about faith? Because what we are going to see is that it is through faith alone, through Christ alone, that saves, not works. As much as works make us feel good, it can be a check on the box, uh, we can be able to do certain acts or deeds to earn our way into salvation, but that is exactly opposite of what the Bible teaches us. That's exactly what the opposite of what the Bible teaches. It is through faith in Christ alone. And tonight, what we are going to look at is we're going to look at five points this evening, and we're going to a- ask the question, what does sola fide mean? We need to understand what the word faith means. In order for you to grab the rest of it, and for order for us to understand the rest of the tenets of Reformation theology, we need to understand the tr- what does faith actually look like and mean in the Bible. How does the Bible define it? Second, we're going to look at what did the Reformers think, and specifically, 
we are going to look at Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great German reformer. Then, as we are going to continue our journey, we're going to see what are we to trust in? If faith is, as we're going to unpack, something to believe in, what are we supposed to believe in? We can believe in many things. I, Lord willing, my car, I believe that it's going to start here in the next hour or so. And so, but we all have many faiths, many things that we trust in. But what we're going to see tonight is salvation. The, the heart of a person is what we are going to look at, and it's through Christ alone. And then we're going to look at we trust in Christ alone by faith alone. That's how this transaction takes place. And then briefly, we are going to look at Luther's influence on the world. That's Martin Luther's influence on the world, because not only has he been uh, passed away for an, a couple of hundred years, he still his writings, his teachings, his biblical commentaries still uh, are ringing today, and we are still using them today as a great tool and aid for us as we study Scripture together. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight, and I hope that you do are ready for us to jump in. But before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to lead our time tonight. So if you will, bow your heads with me, and let's ask the Lord to lead us tonight. Eternal Lord and Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this evening. Lord, this is the day that you have made, and Lord, we truly rejoice and are glad in it. Father, because we know that you are creator. Lord, you allowed the sun to rise, and you are allowing it to set even now. So Lord, as we come to you tonight, and as we understand what the Bible says about faith, and how the Bible, that's the, that's the plumb line, that's the core of how we are saved, through Christ, your Son, Lord, teach us. Father, I pray for those tonight, maybe they're visiting, maybe are watching online, listening online, Lord, that have no idea who Jesus is. Maybe there's men and women in here tonight that think that as long as I do certain acts, if I follow this path, if I do one, two, three, that will get me into heaven. Father, I pray for those who don't know you as Lord and Savior. Help them to come to faith tonight, Lord. Help them to see the beauty and the grace and the mercy of King Jesus. And Father, we love you, and it's in Christ we pray. Amen. So let's look at our first point tonight. What does sola fide mean? I've already given the answer, but it means faith alone. And of course, it is the Latin term, just like the other solas, that help us to be able to summarize the key doctrines of Protestant Reformation teaching. And before we dig any further, we need to understand this key point. And I don't mean this to say this in any elementary way. I need for us to understand it clearly. Because faith alone, the sola fide, did not originate with Martin Luther. Many people think it did, actually. As I was preparing for tonight's uh, lesson, uh, I was reading many articles and either a couple of books that people thought that Martin Luther is the one, the genesis behind this idea. But he didn't. It's way before Martin Luther, way before Martin Luther. And as we will see in just a few moments, it all starts right there in Genesis, right there in the very beginning, the idea of faith. So what does faith mean? And I, I hope that you'll write these down because these, these are going to be great, a great tool for you to understand the definitions here. What does faith mean? Well, first of all, if it is a noun, and it's always going to be closely related to the, word, to the, to the verb believe. The Greek word that we find is pistis, that's the, the majority of what we find in the New Testament. And it comes from the root word of paetho, to persuade or pastuo, to have faith in, to have confidence 
in. And pistis is, like I said, is what is commonly used, especially in the, new, uh, in the Gospels. When you look at it in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is aman, which is A-M-A-N, which means to confirm, to believe, or to support. It's closely connected to the word amen. If you know what the word amen means, it means that you are in agreement of the, uh, the statement or the testimony. It's like saying, yes, I do believe in that when you say amen. That's the connection we have with the Hebrew word aman. We first see the Hebrew word there in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham. When Abraham and, the, and God was, they were meeting there in 15 and the, the covenant that God was establishing with Abraham, it says there in 15, it says that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that's where we first see the Hebrew term. And faith, the word faith is, ex, is to express a truth believed in. I do like the way the Hebrew describes it as a support or which carries an idea of supporting. J.I. Packer defines it as a restful reliance on that to which or to whom credit is given. A restful reliance on to which or to whom credit is given. One theologian says it conveys the thought of a movement of trust going out to and laying hold of the object of its confidence. So you can see faith is relying in a testimony. It's relying in truth. And that's what we see with the word. It's also closely connected with the word faithfulness, which again means trustworthy. It's the root of that is coming from the Greek word pistis, which is where we get our word faith. But when you look at faithfulness in Scripture, it is always going to be connected with the Lord. Always going to be connected with the Lord. A lot of times when you see faithfulness, you're going to see it with covenant faithfulness, how the Lord is faithful to his people. And you see it there in Genesis 3 and 4. You see it even with Noah. And you begin to see it unfold there with, even with, with Moses and Israel there in the Exodus account. And who is faithful? Faithfulness conveys the idea of meaning someone you can trust in. So it has to be anchored in God, in Yahweh. And so that gives us an idea of what faith means. To believe, to confirm, to support, to persuade in a true testimony. A restful reliance on truth. That's what faith means. Which leads us to our second point. What did the reformers think? What did the reformers think? So with the word faithfulness, again, it conveys trustworthiness. The question to ask, who is the one that we are to trust? And this gets to the heart of sola fide. Because when you look at the revival of it in the Reformation, and you look at what the Catholic Church was, how it had dominated the idea of works-based salvation, you have to go back to Martin Luther. You have to go back to Martin Luther. Because there we begin to see in his heart, start the flame, start the fire of the Reformation that began to help us to see Scripture alone and help us to see the God of the Bible and how God is the one who saves and he is the author of salvation. Let me give you a little background on Luther and you can write this down. So Luther, born in Germany, raised in Germany. Uh, I won't give you the full details of his childhood, but he was his, his father wanted him to be a lawyer. And so he defied his father and said, no, I don't want to be one. And he later became a monk, an Augustinian monk. Many years later, 
with the help of his mentor, von Stoppitz. He told him to get a doctor in theology and begin teaching on the Bible. He began teaching on the Bible. Now, granted, if you know what an Augustinian monk, you know it is rooted in the Catholic Church. So there alone, you're, you're seeing this idea of, of teaching the Bible, yet as we know from the Catholic Church where, where Luther uh, was coming from and was, and was, was trained under, you can, see our, you, be, you can begin to see already the conflict that Luther was having as he begins to teach the Bible, and you begin to see how the Word is always going to do the work in the heart of man. And you begin to see the ball rolling, the, the bowling ball begin to roll in the heart of Luther as, he is, as he's teaching through the Bible. Because like I said, the context of where Luther is, is the Catholic Church was teaching this idea of works-based salvation, specifically with this idea of penance, to earn one's way into heaven or a right standing before God. People would give to the church, a merit-based giving or our works. They would give to saints. They would bring up relics. They would uh, basically buy their way into heaven. Or they would buy their way to get their loved ones out of purgatory. This was called indulgences. This is called indulgences. And just think about something. These people were using their hard-earned money to be able to earn their salvation. Just think about that for a second. Or to get somebody out of purgatory, which is not real. And so people are taking their hard-earned money and debatable trying to, hey, I, mean, I get to get mother, mother or father out or, or my sibling out. Just think about the chains that held on people for a second and the gravity of, of that claim, that false truth that was prevalent all through Europe. Just think about that. One of the, the great peddlers, Joan Tetzel, selling indulgences so that people could build these major, these massive cathedrals. This is a famous statement, and you may have heard this before. This is what's quoted by him so that you would give. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory sings. Think about that. Humbling. He also said, this is my favorite, place your penny on the drum and the pearly gates open and in strolls mom. How about that? How about that? So again, it was horrible. And you had people, like I said, throwing their money to build cathedrals, get people out of purgatory, and it was sinful. And by the way, this was not just in the lifetime of Luther. This was hundreds of years of church history that have approved this practice of false teaching, this idea of purchasing or, or works-based salvation through penance. And what it did was to rob biblical truth. It robbed people to see the God of the Bible, what true faith and trust is. So Luther, again, remember, he's teaching on the Bible, and as he's expositing there in the Gospels, he began, this is where you begin to see, I think, around 1514, right before he was born again, before he became a believer, he was teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, and he saw something. He saw a difference between the Latin Vulgate and the Greek text, because he was reading Matthew 417. And it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Who said that? John the Baptist. So repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the difference that we find. What he saw in the Vulgate with penance, he saw this idea of, excuse me, in the Latin Vulgate he saw penance versus in the Greek where he saw change your mind. The Greek word for repent is metaneo, and that is to change one's mind. That's what truly repenting means. It's to change the direction of your heart. It is to change direction of thought, to flee youthful passions, as Paul tells Timothy. So what Luther saw was an internal versus external act. The Catholic Church is saying, give, do penance, works-based. And here Luther sees the conflict. It's a matter of the heart. That's what repenting is. It's changing the direction Changing one's mind, metaneo. Pope was saying tithe, do penance, and now you begin to see Luther see what the Bible says, and it's altogether different, and that's where the battle begins to collide. Man versus what God says, versus the Bible. And here, as we know, biblical truth is always going to triumph because God's word will never return void. And there, about four, three and a half, almost four years later, in 1519, there's where Luther had his famous tower experience as he was reading Romans 117. Just listen to this quote. After many years of prayer, meditation, and struggle, I discovered the true meaning of God's word. Then finally God had mercy on me, and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous man lives. Namely, key word, faith. And that sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. It's passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And now I felt as though I had been reborn or born again altogether and had entered paradise. And there we are. Scripture, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what started the flame. And so now we can see with all these definitions of faith that the word faith, what the Bible teaches us, it's forcing us to look beyond humanistic terms and teaching. But it helps us to look to God, not man. It helps us see that faith is anchored in Yahweh. And that claim or movement as Packer's definition shows us it's helping us to move and trust in the truth. And so Luther saw the beauty of Jesus, and he saw God's grace given to those who believe and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and it all comes by faith. All comes by faith. And this helps us get to our third point, and we're going to spend a lot of majority of our time tonight. If you have your Bible, turn over to Romans. Turn over to Romans. And let's see what Paul was looking at. So our third point is, as you're turning there, what do we trust in? We trust in Christ alone. And ladies and gentlemen, we need to get this point right. We have to. Because eternal life is, is established on this truth of Christ. And so what we're going to do tonight is to make sure, if you don't know Christ, we are going to see how Paul writes to the letter to the Romans of who Jesus is, and he unpacks in precise language 
the gospel for us and how it is, again, going back to Luther, how Luther saw this Jesus. And as we get to Romans 16 and 17, we are going to see that the, how, how, he, how he unpacked the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so this is what we're going to look at tonight. So look with me, and we're going to start in verse 1, Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, according among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul starts off with a bold way to introduce himself as he claims to be a servant of Christ Jesus. And that's what I find here in the ESV. And the term servants there just doesn't do justice enough. When you look at the idea of servant, what the Greek text really is helping us see is that Paul is a slave to Christ. That's what the word means. It is doulos. Paul is a slave to Christ. This is not a hired hand. But this is one who is owned by Christ or who is joined by Christ, who submits everything to our Lord. So Paul, right here in this opening statement, in these first three words, is he showing us that his life is bound to the cause of Christ. And Paul anchors this truth, if you'd like to flip there with me, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And, who, and why is he a slave? What's he getting at? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom, you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What's Paul talking about there in 1 Corinthians? You can turn back to Romans if you'd like. He's talking about the cross. That's what he's getting to. He's getting to the cross that's what we have been purchased. That's the price that Jesus had to pay for us. But also what we find in his introductory statement as he helps us to see two other points. One, he is bound to obey Christ. If you are bound to someone or indebted to someone, you have an obligation to work for them. You, in a sense, you become a part of that person. And so Paul has died to self. He's no longer Saul that he saw Christ in Acts chapter 9. He believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and now it's a done deal. His life was sold out to Christ. But here's the second thing we need to also see. In his statement when he says that he, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, he denounces all human authority when it comes to faith. He denounces all human authority when it comes to faith. Because look where his identity lies. It's in Christ Jesus. The word Christ is Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And Paul says here he is a servant and bound to the Messiah. We see the term servant used throughout Scripture and other places as well. Remember Joshua. 
in chapter 24, 29, all these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, was a servant of the Lord. Philippians 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Servants must obey. And Paul, he's not a servant of indebtedness, but it is a willful submission to Jesus because of what he has done, because of the price that he has paid. And then he goes further. He says, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. And let's break this down a little bit further. The word called is the Greek word kaleidos, meaning one who was chosen, who was set apart. Write this down in Leviticus chapter 20. I think as I look about this idea of being set apart or being chosen, I think these are this is some of the best scripture that we can find to, to help us to understand what it means to be set apart. Leviticus chapter 20, I'm going to go back into verse 24. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy, and has separated you from the peoples. Verse 26, that you should be mine. What's the distinction of being set apart? God is the one who is setting apart. Why? Because they are followers of God. That's the plumb line. God is the one who is saying, I have the one who has set you apart. I am the one who has chosen you. Same thing with the believer. Same thing with the Christian. God has called you before the foundation of the world. He knew your name before time began. And there saved you, saved you by the blood of Christ. And then Paul moves on to say that he is an apostle. And an apostle, apostle means he's a messenger, divinely appointed. He has seen the risen Lord, the apostles were, capital A apostles, and there he is carrying, he's a messenger, and he's carrying the message of Christ. He's carrying the message of Christ. But all this info helps us to stop and to look at a major point as we're looking at Reformation theology. And this is what Luther saw. You see Luther in his progression of thought. He doesn't escape the power of the mind. He doesn't throw away reason. He knows the mind is a gift from God. He knows that God has given us the mind to be able to reason and to think. He doesn't throw that out. But what Luther does in as he's uh, formulating his thought and coming to faith there by Romans 1.17, by the power of the Holy Spirit, what you see um, Luther really do is point us away from man-made theology and helping us to see the God, helping us to see that the Christian is not found in penance, not found in works-based salvation, but found by faith alone, grace alone. That's what he's pointing our direction to. He's helping the church, the Christian church, to see that their identity is all about Jesus. That's what he's helping us to see here. And that's what makes sola fide so important, because it is by faith. And so this has to make us stop for a second and to see some application as we're learning this point in Reformation theology. If Martin Luther, just like Paul, is helping us to see that our life is to be all about Christ, that we are called out, that we are to be set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the question is, are you sold out for Christ? Serious question. If people were to recall your name, would they immediately think 
that you are a Christian, that you're walking with Christ. Now, I know when people say Kenny Jones, they think of handsome, perfect, great. Those are good attributes. I can give you more, um, and I will. Um, but in all reality, when people say your name, do they think about Christ? They think about, they think about hey, someone who has been rem- just changed from the inside out by the power of the gospel. I can think of saints in my life, even as a young man, think men that you have no idea who they are. Leroy and Alan and, and John and, and Jack and, and Ray and men that you don't even know that when I think about them, I think about the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question to ask yourself, can people say that of you? Because this is what the heart of sola fide is. Someone who has faith and trust in Christ alone, which moves us into verses 2 through 4. Look with me briefly. So Paul now is moving in what I'm going to call his employer history. If he was there in a job site and someone were to ask him the, the normal diagnostic questions you ask somebody when you get to know them, what do you do, who do you work for, this would be Paul telling about, I work for Christ. Look with me in verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God and the power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. When you look at verse 2, another way to say this is that Jesus goes back to the Old Testament before Paul. And this is what I was talking about with Reformation theology. Sola fide, faith alone did not start with Martin Luther. It started way before Luther. And here, this is where we go back to what Paul's referring to is Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, where we see the first proclamation of the gospel there. That someone's going to crush the head of the serpent. Who's going to crush the head? Jesus. Well, you see like prophets, like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, who's describing Emmanuel, We see Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 23 about the righteous branch. We see there even in the minor prophets pointed the day when Jesus will come to redeem. And remember, Jesus did this as well. On the road to Emmaus, after he has been raised from the dead, remember he engages those those guys on the road. And this is what Paul's getting to. Look what Jesus says about himself. He says, was it not necessary, he's talking to him there in Luke chapter 24, that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them to the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he's unpacking the Old Testament right before their eyes, helping them to see that Jesus, helping to see himself there in the Old Testament. I love the old Baptist preacher, W.A. Crystal, he, how he calls through all 66 books of the Bible the scarlet thread of redemption that runs throughout all 66 books to point us to Jesus. To quote another, Cal, uh, to, excuse me, another, another, another reformer, John Calvin. He talks about how the, the Bible teaches about Jesus. He, Jesus, is Isaac, the beloved son of the Father, who offered us as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb over the power to death. He is Jacob, the watchful shepherd, who has such great care for the sheep which he guards. He, Jesus, is the good and the compassionate brother Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject of their condition. He is the sovereign lawgiver Moses, 
writing his law on the tablets of our hearts by his spirit. He is the faithful captain and guide, Joshua, to lead us to the promised land. He is the strong and the powerful Samson, who by his death was, has overwhelmed all of his enemy. I love how Calvin ends with this. This is what we should, in short, seek in the whole scriptures, truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and offered to us, to him by God the Father. If one were to sift through the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw us and bring us to him. Therefore, rightly does St. Paul say in another passage that he would know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's all there. I didn't make it up. Luther didn't make it up. It's right there in the scriptures. Right there in the scriptures. Move on to verses 3 and 4 with me. So now, Paul, as he's giving his defense of the, his employer, Jesus, he's here there in three, verses 3 and 4, a Christological description of who Jesus is. He's giving us, the, there the, showing us how Jesus is man and deity. When it says there humanity, that he descended from David, what Paul is saying that he had a fleshly heritage. He, came, he became flesh. He became human. Jeremiah chapter 23 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Paul writes, and Galatians 4.4, 4, but in the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a what? Woman. Born of a woman. You can look in the gospel accounts, Matthew and Luke, and you can see there the birth narrative of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit going in the womb of Mary, and he was born of a woman, flesh. Then Paul moves on to deity, the spirit of holiness. And notice how the two are entwined together. The spirit of holiness shows us Christ's divine nature, and it's anchored in his resurrection. So when Christ was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, there it inaugurated him as Messiah. Peter, in 1 Peter 1.3, says, Blessed be the God, our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, how he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I would encourage you to write down 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 12 through 34. In fact, you're going to read all of chapter 15 to see the power of the gospel and the power of Christ's resurrection. We see it again in the gospels. Remember, Peter declared who Jesus was to, in, to Jesus in Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter replied, you are Christ, the son of the living God. John 10, 30, I am the father in one, are one. John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. There's one of many of seven of the I am statements that we see in the gospel of John. And there, of course, Jesus is talking about going back to Moses, going back to the idea when it says there in Exodus chapter three, when God and Moses are there, and he says, who do I say, who do I go back to Israel and to Pharaoh? Who do I tell them to send me? He says, I am, which means to be. He's the self-existent God. What Paul's unpacking before us is that Jesus is truly God and truly man. That's what we see. That's what we see here. Which leads us to our fourth point. 
So we see that we trust in Christ. That's the testimony that we believe. But how do we do it? It comes by faith alone. Read with me Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God's for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Ladies and gentlemen, these are some of the the most important verses in all Scripture. Not the most important, but some of the most important Scripture. Because here, as Paul's unpacking the gospel, which in fact you can say here in verses 16 and 17 is the thesis of the book of Romans. But here what we find is the great doctrine of the Reformation, which is we are justified by faith alone. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. The doctrine in which the Protestant church and the Christian stands or falls on. Look with me in verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. And think about the context to the, letter, to the, to the recipients of the letter. The letter is going to Rome, the Christians there in Rome, it's a metropolitan city where we have multiple religions and cultures intersecting there. And so when you read the first half of verse 16, you may take it in the negative. But that's not Paul's heart there. That's not what he is saying. It's He's not trying to defend something that is portrayed in a bad light. No, what Paul is doing here is that he is saying that the gospel is God's power on full display to save men. And because of that, he is all the more diligent to proclaim and not to be ashamed of the gospel. And that's not the first time that we see Paul use language like this. He says it in 2 Timothy 1.8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Whenever I think of Paul, I think of a guy just blowing through or driving through a detour sign. You know, you don't you hate a detour? I know I do. Because it makes you go around, and I know they're trying to protect you. But honestly, don't, don't, don't kid yourself. You just really kind of want to scoot around it so you can get to your driveway faster. I feel like Paul, is, that's when you get to 116, you just see him blow through the detour sign to get to the truth, and to get the truth of the matter. And he's not ashamed of the gospel, and he blows it apart all because it is the power of God. And Paul has a firm conviction in the gospel, and he knows it's the only way to be saved. And he's, and he's shattering every man-made system of religion with the words, for it is. The conjunction there, for, what Paul's doing there is he's taking us back to the fall of man. He's taking us back to Adam, when sin entered into the world, and there through Adam all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are guilty in the sight of God. So he's going back to the right there to Genesis chapter 3. But going back to what I said just a moment ago, he's shattering every man-made system of religion. And I specifically want to call out to the Catholic Church the context to which Paul is fighting against. The Catholic Church teaches that salvation, yes, it is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. But what you find is that they say, because they confuse the writings of James, 
that justification is by faith and works, not by faith alone. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. It's right there in their catechism. So you can see that they use the words of Jesus, but they don't know the Jesus, the true Jesus of the Bible. Let me flip it on its other head. You can even put that with other, uh, other uh, man-made systems or religions. I was doing some study for tonight, and I was even looking at the idea of Buddhism. I know we're talking about the context of the Reformation, but what struck me there is that you even see within Buddhism the idea that it's all based upon the good karma, the good works that you place on earth are going to determine your heavenly outcome. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Does to me. That's why I'm going to wash the windows when all y'all are leave so I can get into heaven. And so that was a joke. I'm not going to do that. Grant is. And so, um, but folks, we can see it even in today. Replace the teachings of the Catholic Church to other systems. And I, and I, and I really do mean that. A couple of, uh, of weeks ago, I was sharing the gospel with a man in Cameron Village. And as I was getting to the, to the heart of the matter there in Cameron Village, I, he said to me, hey, listen, I'm a Christian. I go to church. Um, I t- and he even said, I tithe. And I, I even do things around the church to help out. But as I was beginning to press and get into those diagnostic questions, I realized pretty quickly this man had no idea who Jesus was. But guess what, ladies and gentlemen? He went to church, he tithed, and he did things around the church. That was his justification to get into heaven. And I know that, you know, friends families, neighbors, co-workers that say the same thing and try to justify faith in man's works or man's systems and versus what the Bible says, which is through Christ alone. And that is why, going back to the text, that's why Paul says it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God and not of man. You see right there, Paul taking out every, just man right out of the picture. Again, it goes to the heart, to the, the heart of the Reformation, helping to see Luther and Calvin and Nintendo, all those guys, been able to hold up the God of the Bible, Yahweh, who was holy and just and merciful and gracious to us. It is the power of God because the and the way we see the power is the word we it's the Greek word dudamos where we get our word dynamite. The power of the gospel is literally dynamite in man's heart, and that's what happened to Luther there in his tower experience. He heard the good news, the written word. He read the written word of God, and there he believed and was given eternal life. Robert Haldale said, when it is said, that is, the gospel is God's power unto salvation, and all the other means of salvation are excluded. And that's what you see in verse 16. And Paul says it's open to everyone, Jew or Gentiles. Doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Look with me in verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the dynamite to be lit, it comes through faith. And that is why we started off with those definitions. For you to understand what faith is, to believe, it's a sure testimony. There we see the Greek word pastuo, believes, to entrust. And there, 
right there in verse 17 is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And this is what happens in this divine transaction. Man who has lost his righteousness at the fall. And we see, though he's lost it, God provides the way for him to be righteous. And it's given to him by faith. And it's revealed to us, meaning God gave it to his prophets, similar to what he said about the scriptures concerning his son there in verse 2 and 3. This is quoted in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Abraham was given righteousness when he believed God, and it's right there all about the good news of the Messiah. Let me say it another way. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 56, Thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. What Isaiah is saying is that righteousness is coming. What Paul is saying, it has come all through Christ. And then Paul says from faith, from faith. We can read it by faith to faith, meaning to be declared righteous before God through Jesus' work on the cross and the power of the resurrection is received by faith. It is revealed to faith in order to believe. Luther, let me quote him when he read Romans 1.17. It's right, right there. I love how he says it. It is the righteousness he makes available by free grace to all who believe. Luther called it alien righteousness. The righteousness is not our own. It is Jesus' righteousness, freely given by faith. It's right there. Right there in the scriptures. Freely given by faith. Which leads us to our fifth and final point. Luther's influence on the world. Luther was not well-liked by the Roman Catholic Church. They hunted him down. In fact, his friends hid him away for a little while, had to disguise him. There were threats on his life, all because of what Scripture taught. Never forget that. All because of what Scripture taught. He revived the Bible biblical authority of how one becomes a Christian. And Luther, Luther's life spread all across Europe. He really was the, the cannonball that lit it. We can see the influence of John Calvin in Geneva in Switzerland. We can see it even with the printing press that carried Luther's writings all over the world. We see men, one of my favorite reformers, an English reformer, William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English, which again was another feat within itself. We see it even John Knox, the great Scottish reformer. We see it just take place all over, the, all over the world. And I would even say, we can see it even take heart in men here that we see recently, like guys like R.C. Sproul, who started the, I would say, the revival for Reformation theology there when he was starting Ligonier Ministries there in the 60s and 70s. And Luther to show his influence and his conviction of the scriptures and his conviction of the gospel. I love how he says that the great council of Worms, there's his own trial for what he has written, how he is saying it is by faith alone that you were saved, but the grace given to us, 
And listen to the famous words. Unless I'm convicted, convinced, excuse me, by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I will not recant. For my conscience is held captive by the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. What a statement. By a man who is committed to the scriptures and committed to teach faithfully what the Bible says about the gospel. And here we are even today at Capital Community talking about Reformation theology. And to see how what the, these tenets, sola fide, sola scriptura, sola gratia, all of it is right here in scripture alone. Which is why I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message with Grant, how he kicked us off with going through sola scriptura, scripture alone, because that's the final authority. So in closing, Never forget the love and the grace of God given to, towards you all by faith. Never forget the grace given to you. Never forget the grace given to you and the power given to you in order for you to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. It is a true gift of God. And I know there's some of you here tonight, maybe watching online, or maybe you're going to listen to this online. If you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I beg you with everything in me, with the fiber of my being, come to Christ tonight. If you feel the conviction of your heart, you don't know it faith to faith, you've, you've, maybe you have been trying to work your way into heaven, repent of it now and come and see the grace of the Lord Jesus and believe. But if you are a Christian, see that, see that your faith is a gift. And never take for granted the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we thank you for the gift of faith. Lord, we can't save ourselves. And Lord, you are the author of salvation. You are the one by your mercy, by sending your son Jesus to the world and to save men and women from their sin. Father, I pray tonight for those who don't know you as Lord and Savior, help them to come to faith in Christ tonight. And for those, Lord, whether they've been walking with Christ for a couple of weeks or for many years, help them never forget the power of the gospel and the sweetness of Christ. So Lord, I pray that tonight's teaching as we saw in your word in Romans 1, Lord, will set aflame our heart the conviction that is through Christ alone that saves and nothing of our own doing. Father, thank you for your word and our salvation. And it's in Jesus Christ I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.